Hello and welcome to Wonder Girl and I'm Hallie Casey. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. We are a food and farming podcast and March is National Agriculture Month. And this National Agriculture Month, in order to celebrate, we are working with three amazing podcasts about food and farming that we think you'll like. So this is the first of three episodes that we are hosting in our feed. It is an episode of Hot House Podcast, hosted by Leah Turner of Delta Dawn Sustainable Gardens. Leah is another Austin native, just like Dad and I, and she hosts an amazing podcast all about ecology and gardening. And this episode is about Gretchen O'Neill, who is a farmer also in the Austin area of Petals, Inc., yeah, she's a really cool flower farmer, and we hope that you enjoy this podcast episode about the art of floriculture and the practice of farming. If you want to find out about more cool podcasts about food and farming and plant science and gardening, you can either follow on Twitter and Instagram at foodfarmpod, or you can follow the hashtag, hashtag listen to your food. So sit back and enjoy something different. <laughs> I often have told people that you can go to Vegas with all of your money and gamble, or you can be a farmer. (laughs) It really is a crapshoot. I guess what it comes down to is when things go well, you celebrate it really hard. (laughs) Like you just really celebrate it and you, and you relish in that because inevitably there's going to be something that goes wrong. It's just the nature of farming. This is Hot House, a podcast about design, ecology, and the way we garden now. I'm Leah Turner, a landscape designer in Austin, Texas. And my guest is farmer, florist, entrepreneur, Gretchen O'Neill. It's flowers all day, every day in my universe. She started her floral design studio, Petals, Inc., in Austin in 2009. Petals, comma, I-N-K, period. And more recently, she moved out to Maynard, Texas, and began growing her own flowers at a homestead she named Grassdale. In 2015, I purchased seven acres in Maynard, which is about 18 miles northeast of Austin, and literally dug in and started our flower farm. We supply to local wholesalers, uh, local florists. Uh, We sell mixed bouquets around town in various locations. And yeah, it's just flowers, flowers all the time. I found out about Gretchen last year at the Boss Babes ATX Crafter Market, where the Petals Inc. flower truck was making its debut. The whole idea of the truck was when we started the farm, we knew that we wanted to grow as many flowers as humanly possible. And then, of course, we needed to find a home for them. So, you know, the wholesale houses in town, the florists in town, everybody's been like so supportive and we're so grateful for that. But we still have more flowers. (laughs) And we thought, you know, we're in Austin. This is like a fun, hip city. Like, look at all the food trucks. Like, how fun would it be to have a flower truck that was, you know, slinging flowers instead of tacos? This summer, the truck is parked at the Tasty Spoon, a gelato place at South First and Elizabeth Street. Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 4 to 9 p.m. So it's kind of like a date night, date night hours, I guess, more so than like farmer market hours. 
On this episode, we're going to hear about how Gretchen and her all-woman team are building a community around the flower farm. We'll get some ideas for growing cut flowers at home, and we'll stop by the farm. Marigolds, Tessie Gold, Marigolds. So I'm going to start you two on that end, but essentially, guys, what we're going to do is um, on the outer lines, we're going to come on the inside, and you go on each drip. And they don't really need to be very deep. They're very, like, light little seeds. So just going to come along. So I'm really more recently into flowers. I'm not someone who really used to buy a lot of flowers. And if I did, I would just get them at the grocery store and I wouldn't really think about it. But then I became a big fan of the writer Amy Stewart, and I read her 2007 book, Flower Confidential. In this book, she explores the global floral industrial complex and some of the seedier aspects of the flower industry particularly the exploitative and dangerous labor conditions that have been created in Central and South America as a result of the American demand for cheap flowers. Stewart writes, Do I really want that cheap bouquet of roses if I know it's been sprayed with pesticides that are illegal in the United States and they were applied by a minimum wage earning Ecuadorian worker in an ill-fitting gas mask? At the grocery store, I can buy organic wine, fair trade chocolate, and hormone-free milk, But the flowers in the buckets by the cash register are unlabeled, unmarked, entirely undifferentiated. There's no basis on which to compare and choose except for price. Stewart's book also asks us to think about the carbon footprint of the flowers we buy. So take a box of roses from a farm in rural Ecuador. So the roses are cut, and then they travel from the farm to the airport in Quito. Then they're flown to Miami, where they're fumigated to pass customs inspections. And then they are driven to a Miami distribution center. Then they get trucked across the country to a wholesaler or another distribution center. And only then does it reach a retail location, which for many of us is the grocery store. So should we not buy flowers at the grocery store? Well, I would encourage people to go to their local grocery store and put up a big stink that the grocery store is not carrying local product. Um, I mean, and some do, Central Market and Whole Foods um, and also Wheatsville. You can get local flowers in those places, perhaps a few others. I don't know for sure offhand. I mean, it's like with anything else. It's like you can go to Taco Bell or you can go to Torchy's Tacos. You know, you can go to Home Depot to get your plants or you can go out to the Natural Gardener. I think that Austin in particular has such a strong community and is so supportive of small businesses. I mean, I, if I were still in Vermont, I would not have this floralpreneur thing going on. I don't think, I mean, part of it is because we're in Austin and Austin embraces entrepreneurship and is really into new ideas and cool things. And so you know, supporting us. I mean, at this point in the game, it's like, it's not just me. I mean, I employ four people and I want to be the best employer that I can. And, you know, in order to do that, like I need high sales so I can give people paid vacation and, you know, health insurance and, you know, all of these things that are really important to good quality of life. So, you know, when people are buying our flowers or, you know, other small farmers, um, it really does matter. I mean, it's super duper matters. And, you know, flowers, 
I mean, the cost of our bouquet, like our smallest mixed bouquet off the truck is $15. And it's like, yes, a lot of those bouquets <laughs> to, to, to like make a living at it, you know? And I mean, we do it because we love it, but like it is hard work. It is super hard work. And we love all the joy that it brings. And, you know, we just hope that we can get our flowers to as many people as possible. Um, I do think for sure our flowers and other local flowers definitely last longer. I guess I'm not even entirely sure like what a 10 stem mixed bouquet from, I don't know, I probably shouldn't call out a specific grocery store in town, but from your giant local chain, like, like, I don't know how much it costs, but, but it might be all the way from Ecuador. No, it's come so far. I mean, there are for sure, for sure, like pesticides and all kinds of chemicals that are illegal in the U.S., but are not illegal in other countries that are being used on the flowers. You know, so if you are someone that values, you know, organic food and locally grown food and that kind of thing, I mean, we are your flower people for sure. You know, I definitely think that there's value in the environmental aspect and the sustainability aspect. And then, of course, just as the the value of the product itself, even if you are paying two or three dollars more for our bouquet, our bouquet is going to give you longer enjoyment. You know, it's going to last longer. It's going to be more unique. It's going to be changing with the seasons and reflect, you know, really reflect Texas, too. So the road to Grassdale Farm was a bit of a winding route for Gretchen. I am a late bloomer. After college, she joined the AmeriCorps and Triple C program. Oh, it was so great. We, I was based out of Denver, Colorado, and every two months I was sent on a new service project. It was anything from trail work down in Big Bend National Park. I think, I believe that was the first time I'd ever been to Texas. That was in 2001. I helped eradicate invasive weed species in Montana. And I worked in the inner city in Detroit tutoring kids with reading disabilities. But what I loved about it was we were in a new, like geographically in a new place every two months. And we were working with a new set of folks and we were meeting so many great, interesting people. And I was traveling to tiny towns in Iowa or, you know, all over the place, places you would never go on your own, really. And so I got to see a lot of middle America And I made friends that I am still friends with to this day. She worked at a flower farm in Vermont. She moved to Austin. She became a mom. She worked in Montessori schools. And eventually she decided to train as a florist in Portland at the Floral Design Institute. But growing flowers in Texas involved a major learning curve. For me, moving down here from New England, it was literally just like learning a new language. Um, I had encountered sweet peas for the first time in Vermont and they were grown in the very early spring and bloomed through summer. Like you would never ever in a million years plant sweet pea seeds in the fall in Vermont. And I think when I moved down here and started doing a little research and, you know, tons of trial and error, I realized that you can grow quite a lot here and it's just learning when and learning how to manage it. You know, dealing like as far as like the design aspect goes and like doing weddings and doing events, dealing with a live product is so stressful. Um, We definitely still import flowers for those events because, as you know, we can't grow fabulous peonies or lilac or forsythia or different things here in Texas. And so, you know, typically we 
like to use our flowers because they're unique varieties and the vase life is great and we don't have to worry about them dying before the event. But it's not always the case with imported flowers. And um, some flowers are just naturally more delicate than others. And so you spend the whole week, you know, talking to them and primping them and grooming them. And, um, you know, sometimes stuff arrives and it's damaged or it arrives and it's the wrong color or it doesn't arrive at all. You know, <laughs> there's all kinds of um, complications and challenges, we'll say challenges, that arise when you're dealing with a live product. Which is kind of a funny argument for starting a farm, that it's somehow less stressful to grow your own produce than to buy it from somewhere else. But if you think about it in terms of the local food movement, it makes sense. In the past decade or so, there has been a parallel movement of farmer florists across the United States. It's this dream of vertical integration that a lot of people, and particularly women, seem to be making work. The most famous farmer florist in the country is probably Aaron Bensakin of Florette Farms in Washington State. Florette uh, actually started a seed company to sell small batches of cut flower varieties to home gardeners. And these varieties were previously only available in huge quantities to commercial growers in the floral industry. Gretchen attended an early Florette workshop with Bensakin at Florette Farms, and now she's teaching workshops of her own. I went to Gretchen's Field to Vase workshop last October. It was a small group and everybody got to go out in the field and harvest flowers. And then we learned how to arrange the flowers and put together a table centerpiece that we got to take home. And I've done some cut flower gardening and I thought I knew what I was doing until I saw Gretchen's farm. And I was like, whoa, turns out I know hardly anything about cut flowers. So I've been back a few times to volunteer and learn more. I think everybody loves doing the workshops because we get to meet so many new people. Everybody, I mean, for me, sharing the farm with people like brings me so much joy. Like people come out and they've never seen anything like that. Like they've never been around, you know, greenhouses and so many flowers. And it's just a really special place. And I love to share it with other people. On a Google map, this area outside Maynard is labeled New Sweden, Texas, a farming community established in the 1870s, which is unincorporated. But we head towards a high of 100 today. Last month was the hottest May on record in Austin history. The farmhouse at Grassdale, a folk Victorian with spindlewood ornamentation, dates back to the 1890s. In the house, Gretchen is putting the finishing touches on bouquets and centerpieces for two separate weddings that she's designing today. Every countertop and most of the floor space is jammed with flowers. Scabiosa, lisianthus, eucalyptus, flowers I don't even know the name of. We're still, I mean, the farm especially, that component is so new. I mean, we it'll be three years and in that time, we have put up two greenhouses. I think we're at about a quarter of an acre of production, which really is a small amount. I mean, lots of small growers cultivate on two acres. And I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I mean, a quarter. we have a quarter of an acre in production, and we have so many flowers. And it's so much to manage and maintain and keep healthy and keep alive and all of that. Zinnias, tall scabiosa, scabiosa pods are all dried. The rattling of the scabiosa. 
scabiosopods. Petals Inc. has an all-women staff. Lyda Lindstedt, the farm manager, is in one of the outdoor fields instructing some volunteers on planting marigold seeds. And I generally like to do like a couple, like I'll do math out and then I'll fill them all, come back, cover these four, and then I'll see that that one's seeded, I'll make more. Yep. Just of four. Okay, cool. So we're here. Yep. And what's this variety called? This is Tessie Gold. Tessie Gold. Tessie Gold. And they're cute. They're like little button. Oh. Um, so thankful and grateful and happy for all of the women that have you know, magically materialized in my life to help me and be my support team. I definitely could not be doing this by myself. Occasionally, they open the farm to volunteers on Saturdays, and the volunteers also tend to be mostly women. Folks come out and they weed and they help plant things or harvest things, all kinds of tasks, and so much gets done. And it's always just so fun to have so many people together that are super into plants and asking questions and learning different things and and swapping information. Like that's my favorite is we had a gal out in the fall and she had grown amazing dinner plate dahlias. And I was just like, tell me all your secrets. (laughs) Like, How are you doing that? So it's great to meet folks who are doing things different than us and we can learn from each other and everybody, you know, just gets real excited about the plants and we send everybody home with flowers. So that's a bonus too. So it's super fun. It just feels like we're, it feels like we're on the very beginnings of really building a lot of like community type stuff. So that feels good. In one of the greenhouses, I find another woman who works at the farm, Sam Eberhardt, who is currently in the process of starting her own farm, where she's going to grow flowers and fruit trees with her husband. And they're about 45 minutes south of Grassdale. There's great energy here, and this is, you know, typically such a male-dominated field. It's manual labor. I'm moving compost. I'm shoveling. I'm raking. Is really physically tiring, but we're all women and we're getting it done, and I love it. It's very empowering. It's nice being in a space, and I'm sure it's nice working in a space where it's like mostly women, all women. Yes. We, we trial a lot of new varieties every year, and because our ultimate goal is passing the flowers on to another person to enjoy, or providing them for a wedding or event or something like that, we have basically criteria that the plant has to, you know, reach in order for us to say, yes, you're a keeper. And it's essentially, you know, can it handle the climate, whether that's cold or heat? So one new crop that we trialed this year were Bells of Ireland, and they were planted in the fall, and they were champs in the cold. They did not bat an eye. At, I mean, there were times we didn't, we were like, oops, forgot to cover the Bells of Ireland, and it was like 28 degrees. And they're huge and they're fluffy and they're also different than what you see in the store. The ones, because they're an all green flower, but usually when you get them from the wholesale house, it's just a tall flower head and there really aren't any leaves on it. But ours, they're like leafy and they're bushier. So they're kind of different than what you get at the market. They have a scent. That's another huge component that we like. Um, A lot of varieties that we grow have scent. Things, Things you see in the market, like ranunculus, for example. Did you know that they smell? Because they do. (laughs) But the ones you get at the store, they don't. 
So when things are super fresh, there are different qualities and characteristics about them that are super desirable in floral design that you don't get with the imported flowers. And then vase life is probably one of the biggest ones as well. If something is pretty and it's gorgeous, but it only lasts two days, then it's not. Re- it doesn't really have value for us. Uh, we typically like to send things out into the world that at least have a five or six day vase life. Um, when we find something like, for example, the Bells of Ireland, we've been trialing vase life in those and like they look great for 10 days. And that's a super long time. And that's a great value for a customer. I mean, folks go to you know, a grocery store, you know, wherever and pick up a bunch of flowers. And a lot of the times, unless you're purchasing something like baby's breath or carnations, which have long base life, the flowers don't last long. And so for us, when we find something that, you know, does well in our climate and has a long base life, um, you know, bonus points if it's super productive, because then you can get more stems and send them out into the world and use them and if you if you can find a flower that behaves like a zucchini, you know, folks folks tend to leave zucchini on each other's doorsteps in the summer. If we can find a flower variety which produces like zucchini, then we're very happy. What would produce like a zucchini for the home gardener? Well, I would start so the easiest flowers that don't require, you know, covering or a greenhouse or anything like that are of course zinnias. And there are several different varieties that you can grow so that even if you're only growing zinnias in your garden, you can grow several that have a different look or a different size or a different color. The largest headed zinnia is, is called a binary giant zinnia. And those produce pretty big blooms. They come in all kinds of colors. And then there's a series called the Oklahoma series. And those, we like to call those button zinnias. They've got a much smaller head, but they're adorable and they're very prolific. And those also come in a bunch of different colors. Then there's some kind of novelty varieties, which as a cut flower farm, I we've tried them and they're, I don't know, they just either like not productive enough or just not reliable in their stem length and that kind of thing. But in your cut flower garden would be fun. There are cactus varieties, which kind of have spiky petals, kind of look a little like shaggy heads on them, I guess. Those are fun. There's the Persian carpet zinnias, which are kind of like a bushier, shorter zinnia, but they have really fantastic colors and patterns on them that are really unique, especially in fall. Uh, What else? There's one called... I believe it's like Macarena and it's like a hot pink with some splashes of white on the tips. And there's another one called Zowie, which is like a bright orange with then a darker orange on the tips. So anyway, the world of zinnias is like endless and they do really well here. They love the heat. They're a flower that benefit from being cut a lot and cut pretty hard, meaning if your flowers come up, you know, don't be shy about cutting along like deep into the plant to give yourself a long stem and you'll want to cut it deep and cut it kind of at a notch. And once you cut it there, it'll start to put out new growth and give you more blooms. So the zinnias are an example of a cut and come again variety. So they love to be cut and the more you cut them, the more they'll give you. So that's nice. One thing that I didn't really know until I, you know, started gardening, I didn't know that there are certain flowers that actually or certain plants that actually benefit from deadheading or yeah. being cut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because some people think, oh, well, if I buy 
if I buy a cut flower, it's a dead flower or I've killed that plant. But right. actually, no, like it's going to force it to produce more yeah. the more you cut. Yeah. Here's the thing about plants in general and flowers, especially the plant's whole mission in life is to put out a seed. And so if you are cutting the blooms, the plant is going to say, oh, there goes my opportunity to, you know, procreate. I better put out another flower. And so the more you cut them, the more they are going to crank out flowers because once you cut it, it signals to the plant that it has not achieved its goal of putting out a seed. And so if you're not cutting your flowers, you know, it works the opposite way as well. Like if you're not cutting your flowers and it goes to seed, the plant's going to say, well, my job here is done. And so it's not going to put out any more blooms for you. So in most cases, you want to be cutting. Like if you're, if you're growing varieties for a cutting garden, they ben- absolutely benefit from being cut. And so does your kitchen table. And it's the same logic behind vegetable gardening. Mm-hmm. You want to keep harvesting mm-hmm. your, you know, basil or whatever to keep it from going to seed um, so that it'll keep growing. Otherwise, yeah. it'll it'll bolt and it'll go to seed and then you'll have to wait until next year. Right. right. Yeah. It's funny. We were joking this week. It's like, oh, man, we have been working so hard. And we're like, but damn, the plants, the plants have been working harder because we, you know, we've just been cutting, 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 and they just keep cranking out the blooms. Looking at Erin Benzakine's book, The Florit Farm's Cut Flower Garden, here's what she says about growing zinnias. The secret to growing long stem zinnias is pinching. When plants are about 18 inches tall, snip out the center flower bud. This will encourage plants to develop branches low on the plant and ultimately produce larger stems. If you are not regularly harvesting your zinnias, be sure to deadhead, that means snip off the old flowers, to help direct the plant's energy into producing new flowers. I would say if folks are interested in doing a cut garden here, you can get some super basic drip irrigation from Home Depot. Mulch is awesome and does wonders, especially in the summer. And if you're growing on a small scale, you know, other varieties that love the heat would be amaranthus, which is basically like a weed here. <laughs> like it grows so quickly. It's, it's crazy. And also celosia. There's so many kinds of celosia. Some people know coxcomb. Some people know it as the velvet brain flower. There's just, there's so many different types that you can grow in colors and it loves the heat. And it also has epic vase life and it can also be dried. So it has many uses. Uh, Gumfrina is another one, say, super prolific and loves the heat and doesn't need a ton of water. And sunflowers, of course. And when it comes to sunflowers, there are a million different varieties that you can grow. There's all kinds of you know versions of yellow. And then there's also a lot of great chocolate ones and burgundy and two-tone and just different looks to the sunflowers. We have a very thick clay soil at our farm. It's Texas Blackland Prairie, and it's a blessing and a curse. In the spring, if we get lots and lots of rain, a lot of the plants are not happy because they don't like to have their feet wet. But in the summer, when it's a million degrees and you know we use drip irrigation, so everything is being watered right at its roots, and the clay soil holds on to the moisture. So in the summer, like our zinnias and marigolds and celosia and amaranthus, everything is thrilled because they love the heat, but they're still able to, you know, get the hydration that they need to. And like, we love it because it's just more sustainable and environmentally friendly because we're not having to use as much water. 
It occurs to me that one of the differences between a farmer and a gardener is that for the most part, gardeners are overwhelmingly concerned with perennials, while farmers are all about the annuals. As a result, our seasons are different. In Texas, perennial gardeners, so really people dealing with ornamental or landscape plants in general, tend to settle in for a period of dormancy all summer. But there is no such respite on the farm. You can keep growing annuals in our summer heat because annuals live fast and die young. We tell folks that our growing season typically runs from mid-February until mid-November. Most of the plants that we grow will produce for four to six weeks, eight weeks if we're really lucky. It's always special when we, whatever is blooming, we're always like, this is the most special thing because we only have it for, you know, a short period of time. You know, I guess our, our main goal overall is not to have any kind of gap in production. So even though we have loads of blooms right now, we also have tons of stuff in the field that's green and growing and we'll be blooming again, you know, be blooming in a month or so. One of the tricks to make sure you get continual production is through succession planting. There are certain flowers that have just kind of a smaller window of bloom time. You can succession plant it, so meaning you can do several plantings throughout a season and get a continuous supply of really fresh, beautiful blooms. What else would be good to plant from seed now? Right now? Yeah. Okay, so what we're planting right now, you could be planting zinnias, marigolds, sunflowers, celosia, amaranthus, um, let's see. Gomfrina? Gomfrina, yeah, we've got some of that going in the greenhouse. Yeah, I just planted some sunflowers and zinnias mm-hmm. this week and I didn't know if it was like too late. I just got some very like mm-hmm. loving varieties. Oh no, zinnias you can keep planting. Like we'll be succession planting those like also. for the next couple, like month, two months even, you know? And then do you stop planting at some point? You just... Um, I would say a few weeks maybe before, maybe like I would probably stop planting them in like August. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could plant them. So, like, for example, we had some, we planted, I'm trying to remember, my memory's so terrible. (laughs) Um, We had planted them definitely later in the summer, like July, August, or whatever, and they flowered for us, but you could tell once the fall light started changing, the necks started being more, you know, they just were more petite, and the necks were a little more fragile and stuff like that. So, um... We had zinnias all the way till almost Thanksgiving. So they're definitely like all summer. But their peak, obviously, is if you plant them up through July, I would say. Mid-July. They come on really fast. Yeah. They could stand the heat, too. I've noticed they could stand the heat better than other flowers. Yeah, I mean, ours are in completely full sun. No shade ever, and they kick butt. You know, they require more, a little more water that way, but not very much, really. You know, we're just doing this drip irrigation, so it's directly on the source. And
Are there any flower, other flowers that you grow that are bulbs or that are not grown from seed in that way? Yes. So we grow, as far as bulbs, we grow a lot of narcissus, so daffodil family type florals, and we love them. And there are so many different kinds. We're definitely still learning what will perennialize here. Uh, the, the most tried and true is early cheer for us. And that's something that will perennialize in Texas and will come back year after year and give you gorgeous fragrant blooms. Uh, we tried tulips this year. It was a horribly failed experiment. <laughs> uh, there were there were a lot of complications that went into the project. Our order got lost, and then they arrived, and there was some damage on the bulbs, and they arrived late, and then I think maybe we didn't plant them deep enough, and you know all these things. Anyway, the tulips were a disaster, but we may try again next year. So we do bulbs, we do the corms, we do seeds, and then the third type of plantings that we do are plugs, which basically means we purchase baby plants from a nursery. They get shipped to us from all over. And I had kind of resisted that route for a really long time. I think part of me was like, oh, I'm not a real farmer if I'm not, you know, starting my own seeds and doing all of this. But what it came down to was I had attempted to germinate Icelandic poppies for myself literally for years. And I would get out, you know, sell packs and seed, you know, hundreds and end up with three plants because they're notorious for having terrible germination. So finally, I was like, I'm just, I'm going to buy plugs. I'm going to see what that's all about. And so lo and behold, on our doorstep arrives trays of perfectly uniform, perfectly green, beautiful, healthy, ready to put in the ground plants. And so we did that and like didn't look back. We we're like, what else can we do in plugs? Because it was amazing. And, and for us too, we're such a tiny farm and we're still developing all of the infrastructure at Grassdale. And we don't have a propagation house. We have like a folding table set up under a tree. <laughs> then we put all of our you know seeds on. And so, you know, and, and we're also a very tiny team. And so then when you look into the time that it takes to seed something and then care for it and make sure it doesn't die for like eight weeks before you can put it in the ground, sometimes it just makes more sense for us to purchase plugs. Yeah, because it's um, it's labor intensive to grow stuff from seed that doesn't like to be direct sowed right. out in the field. Yeah. And even with the direct sow, I mean, that's one great thing about the clay soil in the summer is because it holds the moisture, it will keep the soil moist. And in the summer, I mean, we can get zinnias to germinate in two days. Like it's super quick. Direct seeding can be hit or miss. It kind of depends on your soil and depends on your weed situation. Some people don't have as as bad of a weed situation as others. And how do you manage the weed situation, weeds and pests and all that? We do. Well, for weeds, we this year we did some leaf mulch on several beds and it worked awesome. And again, with the clay soil, it's like you just constantly want to be adding that organic matter. So we did leaf mulch on some of the scabiosa and the foxgloves and in a couple other places. And so then when those crops are done, everything will just get tilled back in. So there'll be lots of organic matter in there. And will you tell us what you mean by leaf mulch? Literally, we raked up all of the cedar elm leaves in the yard and bagged them and then spread them all around the plants. We have used, we've also used straw for mulch in the narcissus beds when those start coming up to kind of keep the weeds down around them. Uh, we definitely do a lot of hand weeding and we also have like a hoop hoe. As far as pests go, this year has, knock on wood, been pretty good. We got on a regular schedule with 
using a combination of fertilizers and neem oil. So we'll do seafood and fish emulsion and neem oil. And we were spraying that. We were aiming for once a week, but sometimes it was twice a week. And we'll spray that on like the anemones and the ranunculus and those kinds of things. And we have seen a dramatic drop in our aphid population this year. So I think that's because of the neem oil. Our other biggest pest is called a thrip. And we have still not figured out the magic to conquering the thrips. Last year, we tried everything from beneficial nematodes to predatory mites to um, Jack's dead bug spray, all kinds of things. And we still have them. So we're still trying to figure that out. (laughs) And we grow things like our spacing is pretty tight. So we do kind of like an intensive farming approach. So we try and utilize like every square inch of space so that we can get as many blooms as possible. And a lot of the plants that we grow benefit from being close together. Um, It kind of helps them with their stem length and makes them more productive and But at the same time, there's less airflow. And so I guess it's sort of finding that balance between the productivity and the health of the plant. Back in the greenhouse with Sam. So um, what are you guys doing here? We are planting Gumfrina, the variety is Audrey White seedlings. Are you familiar with Comfrina? Yeah, I uh, I have planted it just from seed, just like the, the I guess the like Mardi Gras one. Oh, I'm not familiar. It's it's one that you find in nurseries, like mm-hmm. in a little seed packet. But the you know the varieties for for I guess you know landscape flowers are all different than the varieties gotcha. for cut flowers. You know, not so it's, mm-hmm. it's like I'm learning this whole new plant palette just by like being out here you know Mm -hmm. it's really cool something i have discovered since being out here is what do i call the plant you know i know plants by their common names i know them by their scientific names which is typically the genus and then i know plants by their floral industry name and so sometimes i don't know what to call a plant (laughs) so what is the floral industry name because that's the one i don't know this just goes by gomfrina okay turns out that in this case, the Latin name and the floral industry name are the same, Gomfrina. But the common name is sometimes globe amaranth is what people call Gomfrina, which is very confusing because it's not an amaranth. And there is another flower called an amaranth, which they were growing at Grassdale. And you guys are planting amaranth too. So is that like the big droopy amaranth or yeah different so she's we're planting two different kinds some are more plume like and are a little spike of color and then some are the long strands of seeds that you might see in some of our more native amaranth okay i love those like the pesky pigweed you see around town. That's an amaranth. Oh, it is? If I'm not mistaken. Oh, well, that makes sense. That's kind of the problem with common names, though. What I know is pigweed may not quite be the same thing as what other people call pigweed or vice versa. So. And we've talked a little bit about our climate, but I'm wondering about how does climate change 
affect your thinking. Right. I often have told people that you can go to Vegas with all of your money and gamble, or you can be a farmer. (laughs) Um, It really is a crapshoot. It really is every year between weather and pests and just plant performance and everything. Luckily, it seems to be that on years when certain crops aren't doing well, there are others that are completely shining. But, you know, with the weather, it's just a roller coaster in Texas. I mean, even day to day. I mean, you know, in the summer, it's just going to be hot as hell. But fall and spring are definitely less predictable as far as rain. And another, <laughs> another weather component we deal with out in the prairie is wind. We get crazy wind. And we use netting on certain crops to kind of help keep them upright, you know, managing the greenhouse, whether you're rolling up or rolling down the sidewalls, sometimes feels like a full-time job. Yeah, we have wind. (laughs) Um, But for us, I would say the trickiest part is the rain. And when we have tons and tons of rain, having less rain for us is less of a problem because we can control that. We've got, yeah, we've got clay soil, we've got drip irrigation, and we feel good about being able to manage that. If we have too much rain, um, you know, the greenhouses can still be managed because they're covered, but things in the field are just at the mercy of the weather. Our very first year, We lost a lot of ranunculus and anemones in the greenhouse even. There was so much rain that the water was being, you know, the soil was just sucking it in from the sides. And so the soil was so saturated. And then we got a couple of, you know, 90 degree days and it just fried the plants. They were not happy. So it's hard. It is. It's a gamble. It is a gamble. And, you know, you try to... I guess what it comes down to is when things go well, you celebrate it really hard. (laughs) Like you just really celebrate it and you, and you relish in that because inevitably there's going to be something that goes wrong. It's just the nature of farming. That's just my tactic. Um, Okay. So I've done those two. Um, So I'll set you up. I'll come down and help you. But, yeah, and then I and then it's really just as simple as that, like covering it really light. So I'm gonna let you share this bag. How do you decide what to keep, what to plant in the greenhouse, and what to like during the warm months? I guess wondering like what goes in the field versus what goes in the greenhouse. Um, well, definitely it's like an ex- uh, experiment for sure. Um, on some of them, like we're trying zinnias in the greenhouse for the first time, and they're going pretty well. Um, we're trying sunflowers in the greenhouse for the first time. They had, they got definitely got like wheat um, beat up by the wind. Mm. So we're gonna see how they do in the greenhouse. But really, things that can just take a ton of heat. So celosia takes a ton of heat. The lysianthus um, stuff like that, you know. So we're just anything you know that can take a ton of heat. We're gonna try it out. Last year we didn't have a lot of space in the greenhouse because we only had the one, and now we have two. So we're definitely trying some things that we haven't done before, and so we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see how it goes. Give me a sprinkle of those. Cool. Thanks. So these are four. So oh, you've done this side here. Yep. I use Instagram as my like memory thing. I go back and I'm like, what was I growing? And you know what I mean? I'm just really bad at that. And like farmers should just be like, yep, I know the weather and I know. It's not, not great. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you know, honestly, like, the flowers, this is a new thing for me. Like, I come from a more native plants background, so I'm learning, you know, and, and even Gretchen, I mean, she's been doing it a long time, and we're, we're always learning. This is never a set thing, because nature changes the game on you, too. Sure does. In the front pasture, there is about three acres, which is all native wildflowers. And we mow a huge circle in the center. And then from the circle, we mow pathways five or six feet wide out in all directions so that you can walk in it. And, you know, we, we have red ants. We could have we could have snakes. We're in Texas. There's all kinds of nature that's not so great. So we do a, a little bit of landscape stuff like that so that you can experience the nature, but safely. can tell that, you know, when I came out and visited um, to take your workshop, I could really tell that this was like a healthy ecosystem because there were so many butterflies mm-hmm. and there were so many monarchs and it was just yeah. like such a treat to see. I think that's one of the things that I love the most about it. And I always have to, rem- I mean, honestly, I have to remind myself sometimes because, I, you know, I love what I do and I'm surrounded by so much beauty, but it is on some days just like any other job <laughs> and I am stressed out and I'm running around and I'm behind on my to-do list and I am, you know, drowning and all the things that have to happen. And I literally have to stop myself and like look around because I am surrounded by beauty all the time. Like I'm not in a cubicle. I'm not, you know, in some factory, like I might be hustling, <laughs> like I'm in a factory sometimes, you know, cranking out bouquets. But I am in such a beautiful place. And I think one of the most valuable things for me personally since being at the farm is the sense of seasons. So coming from New England, I grew up primarily in Connecticut and spent lots of time on Cape Cod and in Vermont. And I went to college in New Hampshire, all of these places that have very distinct seasons. And when we moved to Texas, that, you know, you just you don't have that. There's no foliage in the fall. There's no snow in the winter. There, there's not like stark contrasts. But what I noticed when we moved out to the farm was that it very much felt like there were seasons, like definitely with, within what we were growing, but also the natural landscape. So for example, in the spring, there's uh, there's fruit trees on the farm. So we have peaches and we have asparagus and the red buds and the rose bushes and, you know, all of the wildflowers in the spring. There are just so many things that mark that season. And then moving into the summer, we have fig trees. So we have figs. And then there's, you know, of course, all of our, all of our summer flowers. And there's also in summer, it's basically where we are, there's 
primarily corn and hay fields. And so in the summer, we're surrounded by all this corn and then we're surrounded by hay fields. And then at the end of the summer, the farmers cut the hay and bale the hay and it's like haying season is happening. And, you know, then the fall rolls around and we do have some trees that show a little bit of color. Um, And then of course we have all of our fall flowers and then like the corn is all cut and that all comes down. So there are just a lot of natural cues and things around us that make me feel like I live somewhere where there are seasons, which feels pretty magical because I'm still I'm still in Texas. I'm still in the same place, but I feel like I live on this little microcosm of seasonality or something. It is. Yeah. And once you start really, you know, relying on the garden or relying on the farm or the land, you do start to really connect to those Mm -hmm. seasons in Mm -hmm. a different way. Yeah. And honestly, too, I always tell people that the light on the prairie is like a fifth season. I swear it is. I don't know if it's because there's so much open space and there's not a lot to break the light, but every day if it's clear we have an amazing sunset an amazing sunrise it's just the most beautiful golden light it's i really feel like it's it's its own character on the farm thanks for listening to hot house this is the fifth episode and i'm trying some new things and learning some new recording and editing tricks so i hope you'll bear with me as i play around with the format And feel free to shoot me an email if you have any feedback or questions, info at hothousepodcast.com. Please sign up for the Hot House newsletter by going to hothousepodcast.com and clicking email list. I'm trying to communicate via the newsletter instead of Facebook because I'm sick and tired of Facebook, but I am still on Instagram at hothousepodcast and at Delta Dawn Gardens. What about getting in touch with Petals, Inc.? Gretchen's Instagram is amazing at Grassdale ATX and petalsincfloral.com is the website where you can learn more about the truck, the studio, and the workshops. If you'd like to volunteer, send an email to Lyda, L-Y-D-A at petalsincfloral.com and that's ink with a K. Our music comes from Austin's own Moonsickles. That's moonsickles.bandcamp.com. Our engineer is Mike Moody at Permanent Record. Hi, this is Hallie here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you know of a creator who's talking about food, farming, gardening, plant science, anything in that field that you think is doing a really cool job and you would love to talk about it, post with the hashtag listen to your food or tag at food farm pod. I am always blown away by the amazing work people are doing in the space around food and farming. There's so many cool creators and I am so excited to take March to talk about how much I love this work. I hope you'll join me on Twitter and Instagram to celebrate the cool things that people are making. Hashtag listen to your food and at food farm pod.